This is the Education of a General podcast, episode two. As was mentioned in episode one, uh, the purpose of this podcast is to help identify um, the how of leadership. How do we provide purpose, motivation, and direction? Um, how, do we, how do we become the leader that provides value? Definitions are great, but again, it's that practical application that's a problem. Um, throughout a lot of reading and, a, and listening to what others have taught, um, I've boiled it down to four mo- main characteristics that a leader should have. Leader characteristics, traits, I don't know the best way to define it, but four things that, that you should focus on to therefore be that good leader. Um, what I found very interesting is, is most of those we view as good leaders, they all talk about generally the same thing. It's not, it's not a, a new concept. It's not a, a, a concept that's elusive. We talk about it all the time. We dance around it, but, but how to be a good leader has been, it's been talked about forever. But we as humans, we do a terrible job of putting it into practice. Um, we don't do it as leaders. Uh, we default to, because we're in a position of authority, uh, that means that we're a leader. Um, we're put in that position Therefore, people need to listen to us. Um, even though we're taught, that's exactly what we shouldn't do. Um, it's the easy button. The Army's probably one of the worst examples of this. Um, when you become an officer, you, you commission as an officer, and then you attend what's called Basic Officer Leadership Course, or Bullock for short. Uh, for, for, for me, my Bullock was 16 weeks, and the only leadership focus we did in the first few weeks uh, was to talk about the definition of leadership, which we talked about last podcast, um, and how the Army looks at leadership. And then we had to write a leadership philosophy that we would present to our platoon as platoon leaders. And that was it. Uh, the remainder of the course was focused more on the job you would do as your specific branch, be it field artillery, infantry, whatever that is, military intelligence. Um, but that was it. So the Army school that literally is called the Basic Officer Leadership Course that's supposed to teach you how to be a leader spent less than a week talking about leadership. Um, so as we go through this, I'm going to refer to these four characteristics as, as the how behind how to be a good, effective leader. Um, so I've kind of boiled it down over all these readings to... to Four or five characteristics, four and five kind of blend into each other. So we're going to say four or five, um, but I'll list them out here. So the first one is be a character slash principle-based leader. The second one is take ownership. Third one is practice to improve your leadership abilities. Four is study history. And the fifth one, which ties into four quite a lot, is, is to read. Um, so... I'll go through each of these really quick and just kind of explain my thought process behind them. Um, So Stephen Covey, he wrote a book called uh, Principle-Centered Leadership. It's a fantastic book. Uh, But the whole purpose of the book is examining the qualities that uh, leaders should possess. If I've got to boil it down, the whole book basically talks about being a person of character. Um, Principle-based, I mean, character, principle-based, those things are, are very similar character has a a fairly broad definition Um, but inside of those there's lots of qualities that they talk about that make up someone's character Um, if you've listened to the Jocko podcast he talks about 
the most important quality for a leader is humility. Um, Stephen Covey also talks about humility as one of those those driving factors for being a principle-based uh, leader, someone who has that strong fortitude. Um, and as again, as I've gone through a lot of these readings and studying, a lot of these leaders talk about the same thing, you know. So, so Dick Winters, Major Dick Winters from Band of Brothers, he's quoted as saying, uh, "Strive to be a leader of character, competence, and courage." So those are all, you know, uh, various traits and attributes that leaders should have. Um, George Patton, this is one of my favorite ones. He says, "Moral courage is the most valuable and usually the most absent characteristic in men." So moral courage, there. I mean, man, we could we could deep dive into what moral courage is and what that means, but, but it's interesting, you know, those are just two very short, quick examples of individuals who've talked about these. You know, we've got Stephen Covey, who's a business guy. You've got Dick Winters, you know, combat leader, George Patton, obviously combat leader talking about these things and, and basing them around character and, and being that principle based leader. Um, another important quality and again, I don't know if quality is the best way to, to, to define this, but it's talked about all in, across all industries, military, business, sales, um, whatever it is, but that is self-discipline. So motivation in the Army definition, right? You're supposed to provide motivation, direction, and purpose. But motivation is hard because motivation is a feeling. It's temporary. It's fleeting, right? Everybody has felt motivated. It's... Uh, December 29th right now, so you've got the whole new year, new me stuff coming up pretty quick. But how often do we set those New Year's goals and within, you know, a week or two, they kind of fade off and we start making excuses and we're not so motivated to do those things anymore. We get tired, right? Life happens. It happens to everybody. Everybody sets goals that they don't achieve because it's it's just a goal. But that's where that self-discipline comes in. When the motivation fades, that discipline kicks in. Um, and leaders should be that example of self-discipline. And instead of providing motivation, they should provide an example of self-discipline. Yeah, they can motivate their guys, but when, when it gets hard, when they're tired, when they're done, it's that discipline that's going to make a big difference. And self-discipline, it's hard because it's just that itself, right? You can't force someone to be disciplined. You can't make them. You can. It's not effective as a leader. Um, that's more authoritarian, but you have to instill it in people. And being an example is probably one of the better ways to do it. And being an example of self-discipline means you you just do the right thing and you, you get up and you're disciplined with what you personally need to do. You know, working out, eating right, um, showing up to work on time. You don't have to make a big example of it or be grandiose about it, but you've got to be... You've got to be that that example. I mean, books, podcasts, motivational videos. Um, they talk about self-discipline. I mean, there's countless examples of this. Fitness ties into it. Um, and it's not just a military standpoint, although it is super important in the military. But, I mean, just today I was listening to, to David Goggins talking on, on Joe Rogan's podcast about discipline. Um, and basically what he's saying is that he wasn't doing it, he wasn't working out, to be, um, to lose weight or to be the strongest, be the fastest, be an Olympian. It was about disciplining his mind. Um, and for the military, I mean, if you're an officer, 
you've got to be you've got to be that example look this is a controversial approach to things and, and conversation but i'm gonna talk about it anyway but like if you're fat and out of shape you lose credibility it's it's a fact it doesn't make it right or wrong i mean i've heard i've had this argument arguments of rough uh, strong term but i've had this discussion with a lot of people where it's like you know the army emphasizes fitness way too much and if you're not a 300 pt guy or now a 600 pt guy like you're you're not a good leader and blah 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 all these things right and people are on both sides of that fence but it's it's a fact man if you don't look like a leader if you don't look like a soldier you're going to lose credibility with those around you you could be the best tactician you could be the best you know leader best friend best whatever you want to be but on face value judging a book by its cover like you're not supposed to do if you're fat and out of shape you're going to lose credibility um you know how more and we were soldiers when he came over and and took over that battalion right before they went to vietnam i mean he made it abundantly clear that there will be no fat officers and no fat soldiers um and then when you get into it you know being out of shape in combat that's a whole nother thing right but if we're talking just being an example of that self-discipline you've got to look the part man you got to be that example and you don't have to be a 300 pt guy or somebody that maxes the pt test you know now it's out of 600 points but you don't have to be that person that maxes out that pt test you don't have to be a cross-country runner. You don't have to run 10 miles a day. I mean, I'm not talking that kind of stuff. You don't have to be a David Goggins or a Jocko Willink or whatever it is. But you've got to be an example. So whatever that means for you, you've got to be that example. Um, I've got a, an example I think about when, when I was a company commander. My executive officer, the dude was a stud, by the way. Um, he was, he's a prior enlisted dude. Just absolute physical specimen, you know, 600 pt score guy runs five miles a day i mean he's that guy i just said you don't have to be but he's the guy everyone wants to be um he, he gave an example of he had a soldier who was you know out of scope in their body composition measurement so in the army the army says if you're so high so tall you can weigh this amount and if you don't you have to have a body composition test done which is pretty pretty basic i mean they measure your neck and your waist and do an average so he had a soldier who was out of scope there, and they were measuring him to see where he was at. And the soldier brought up the point that he said, hey, why am I being held to this standard when the battalion executive officer, so this dude's a major, by the way, he's above the company level. The battalion company officer or executive officer clearly doesn't pass tape and hasn't for a long time. You know, so there's uh, at the soldier level, I don't know what rank this soldier was, but he's on the enlisted side. He's, he's at the company level. He's not even at the battalion and he's asking this question of, you're holding me to this standard when there's a major, there's an officer at battalion who's in a leadership role who isn't meeting the standard. And it's very clear that he's not meeting the standard and he hasn't for a long time. But we're kind of just ignoring it and, you know, driving on. So my XO, he says that, that that's why he works out the way that he does. That's why he runs at least five miles every day. You know, he's 41 years old and on our last ACFT or our last Army Combat Fitness Test, I mean... He ran a, a, an 11.52 mile, 41 years old. The next closest guy it was literally 20 years younger than he is. I mean, he's just, he's, he's the example the end of, of discipline. You know, he leads by example, and he does it every single day, and I'm, I'm glad he's my executive officer. But anyway, he's that example because he can't hold, 
he can't hold soldiers to that to that standard if you're not going to be there. I mean, if you come in and you're a leader and you're like, well, we've got to do height, weight, and tape you, and you're failing yourself or you're close to failing, you're losing credibility. You're not being that example of discipline. Um, but the second one that we mentioned was taking ownership. Okay, so this is this is going to be kind of a this is kind of a controversial topic, right? There's a lot of people who who really don't like the concept of ownership or think that it's so basic it doesn't make any sense. Um, and a lot of people don't like the way that Jocko approaches it, you know, because he says extreme and he talks about being a you know that extreme ownership and so look, whatever your thoughts and feelings are on the concept here, the, the overarching root of the concept I'm a huge fan of. Um, the concept of ownership is the fact that if you're in charge and you're a leader, you own everything in your sphere. It doesn't matter what it is. If you're in charge, it's on you. So if somebody fails or somebody messes up along the way, at some point as a leader, you failed them. You didn't give clear guidance. You didn't give them uh, the right instruction for what they were supposed to be doing. And you can't blame anybody else. You can't blame anybody else for the fact that something went wrong. You know, if they don't execute an order correctly or if they don't follow exactly what the commander's intent was, somewhere you weren't clear enough. Somewhere you didn't give them the opportunity to ask questions. You know, the, the list is long and distinguished, right? Jocko wrote a whole book about this. But you can't get out there and start blaming others. That's the root of this, right? Like, something wrong happens... It's on you, man. It's not on, it's not on your, your platoon sergeant. It's not on your second in command. It's not on your CFO. It's on you. If you're if you're in charge, you own it. Um, it's all on you. So just if you want to learn more about that, clearly go to the Jocko podcast. I talk about it all the time. Read his books. Um, he's got a lot of good books on this. The second one we or the third one we talk about is is practicing leadership skills. So leadership, you know, the we talked about this briefly in the last podcast you know are leaders born or are they made the answer is both right somebody might be more inclined to be a better leader but you can get better you can practice you need to practice if you're in a leadership role um by the way everybody's a leader just throwing that out there but if you're in a leadership role and you're not doing these things if you're not trying to get better if you're not trying to learn if you're not becoming that better leader um then you're it's like working out right like if you don't go to the gym every single day, within 24 hours, your muscles start to atrophy. Like, you have to be working out every day. You have to be trying to improve. Um, but if you're not, then you're going backwards. And that's the same thing with leadership. It's a skill. Um, it's a lot of work, man. It's every day. You've you've got to be consistent. You've got to find you got to find others that want to be become that want to become better leaders. You got to have a group of people that you can go to and you know bounce ideas off of, talk to them. Um, you're going to run into leadership challenges that you don't know how to, you don't know how to handle. And so you've got to have a resource, you know, go talk to somebody and you got to be figuring out how to improve. You know, I, before I decided to, to pursue the active military life, I was a police officer for about seven years, roughly. Um, so my peer group and those guys, I was really close friends with, spent a lot of time on the SWAT team with, um, all those guys are in administrative roles now at the police department, be it you know, sergeants or soon to be lieutenants and things like that. Uh, we have a, a group text where, you know, we talk about a lot of stuff, but we often go to this group text and we talk about leadership challenges we're facing. You know, how do we handle this? Or anybody have an idea on, on how I should 
figure this problem out or we talk about books we've been reading. Um, we suggest other books to each other. I mean, and that's just one example of one of the things we do, trying to improve, trying to be better, trying to be uh, better examples and better leaders. Um, you, but you got to have, I would suggest, you know, having somebody that you can talk to, be it a friend, a spouse, a, whoever it is, that you can bounce these ideas off of. Um, but a, again, every day, you got to be doing something to improve that skill. If you don't, you're going backwards. Um, you know, and, and Eisenhower, he, he wrote a letter to his son who was at West Point during World War II, General Eisenhower, and he said, the one quality that can be developed by studious reflection and practice is the leadership of men. You know, so you got to, all of these things encompass together, right, about improving and becoming a better leader, but but developing and, and reflection and practice, you got to practice. Um, the next one that we talk about and that I'll focus on is studying history. This one kind of couples with reading, right? So this is why four and five are kind of the same thing, but they go hand in hand. But it doesn't have to be reading, right? It can be documentaries. It can be movies. It can be, there's a lot of resources, right? It doesn't have to be just books. Um, you know, for the first 20 plus years of my life, I didn't read. You know, I didn't read anything of any value. And now it's like, I can't get enough. I just, I found finally what I want to read about. And I just, my book list, I'm reading, you know, several books at the same time because there's so much I just want to read and that's not everybody right like that wasn't me for a long time but documentaries movies there's lots of good things that you can do but but you you look at it and you learn from their mistakes I mean there's enough things that have gone wrong in history that you can learn from those mistakes without having to make them yourself um, General Moore Again, from We Were Soldiers, Hal Moore, he says this, you know, he says, he says, study history and leadership qualities, pay special attention to why leaders fail. So if there's a leader who did something wrong, look at, look at it holistically, look at what they did, look at what you can learn from that and improve on. Um, and then again, like I said, the four and five, this reading come together. So General Mattis, you know, Marine Corps General Secretary of Defense for two years, um, he has this quote, and it says, if you haven't read hundreds of books, you are functionally illiterate, and you will be incompetent, because your personal experiences are n aren't broad enough to sustain you. So that comes back to what General Moore's saying, right? Like, learn from it. You don't have enough personal experience to be able to, you know, figure out every situation, which is why you need, you need uh, history and, and other examples to help you out. President Truman... This is one of my all-time favorite ones. He's, he says, not all readers are leaders, but all leaders are readers. You know, General Madison, Mattis was a good example of this. I mean, the dude, he, he has to use the Dewey Decibel system for his books. The dude has enough books that it's like he has his own library. He's got to track where they're all at. President Theodore Roosevelt, I mean, he would read three to four books a day. The dude could speed read like nobody's business, but... Um, like there were examples of somebody would give him a book at a White House dinner at like six o'clock at night, 300, 400 page book. And then the next morning he would talk to that individual about that book that he had just read and all of it, you know, in detail. So it, reading as again, another skill you can get better at, but you've got to be a reader so you can learn from others mistakes and you've got to learn constantly be trying to learn. You know, if you put these four things into practice, four or five things, you know, um, you're you're on your way to becoming a better leader. 
and a leader that provides value to the organization, right? Like that's the goal. What can you do to be a leader that provides value, not just an, an empty body and a person in a, a position of leadership, even if you're not a leader? Um, so as we, as we go through this podcast and, and future podcasts and we look at these military leaders and, and what they did and their histories, these are the, the four slash five things that we're going to look at, you know, being, being a character principle, principle-based leader, taking ownership, practicing to improve your leadership skills and abilities, you know, studying history and reading. We're going to look at these things and, and tie them into how these leaders were examples of these and what we can do to apply them in our daily lives. Um, but picking up before I pick up with George Marshall, when I've already gone on, you know, for a while here, so it'll be just a quick, uh, discussion on Marshall and then we'll, we'll pick it up again on the next one. But there was another, there's another biography written in 2019 on George Marshall. It's called George Marshall, Defender of the Republic by David L. Roll. Um, and from the prologue, I should have read this last time, but I didn't, um, he talks about exactly why it's important for us to understand what George C. Marshall did and who he was. Um, so I'm just going to read it straight from the book. Um, and again, this is another biography. It's a good one. It's it's only one part instead of the four volumes. So if you want to read a, a good summation of George C. Marshall, this is a pretty good one. But from the book, George C. Marshall, who served under 10 presidents, occupies a singular place in the history of the 20th century yet his significance is fading from public memory. His achievements and particularly his character must never be forgotten. So that's, I mean, right off the bat, we're talking about that first one, character and principle-based leader. Um, jumping down a little bit here in the book, recalling George Marshall's power to influence people and events, former Secretary of State wrote, the amount... He the moment he entered a room, everyone in it felt his presence. He was a striking and communicated force. So that one, you know, that's just for me at least. That's that military bearing is a is a, a way that we encompass that right in the army. When we write evaluations, we talk about one of the things is bearing. What that means means: Do you look like a soldier? Do you hold yourself like a soldier? Do you talk like a soldier? Um, so that's just an example of, of who he was as a person. Um, so Marshall, the, it goes on to say the presence of a great man, he doesn't dissemble. He would tell the truth, even if it hurt his cause. Congress always respected him. They would, they would give him things they would not give anyone else. So he built relationships, which we'll talk about. Um, while Marshall's accomplishments and the respect he commanded during his professional life were unrivaled, the answer to the question of why he matters today lies in the values and principles that shaped his character. Marshall lived by a moral code that emphasized self-control, perseverance, integrity, truth, honor, and duty. He was a humble man. Even the instructions he left for his funeral reflected this. So here, here's what he said about when he, for his funeral. Bury me simply, like any ordinary officer in the U.S. Army. 
who served his country honorably. No fuss. And above everything, do it quietly. So, you know, like I mentioned in the last podcast, there's a lot of these military leaders that we don't remember or we don't talk about and we don't examine who they were and what they stood for and 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 what that means for us. Um, so George C. Marshall, this this prologue here in this book by David Roll, you know, really encompasses, you know, what I what I was trying to say in the last podcast about who he was as a person. I mean, he's a person of character. He's humble. He's a principle-based leader. And he's he's an example of that self-discipline. You know, that tight moral code they talk about who emphasized self-control. Um, self-discipline, man. It's a, it's a topic that a lot of people, it's kind of controversial in today's world, right? And it's kind of a joke to a lot of people. And you say things, Jocko will say, you know, discipline equals freedom and 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 understanding what that actually means, right? That when you live by a code and when you do certain things that may appear restrictive, um, it actually opens up opportunities and gives you the freedom that you need. Um, which is funny in today's world because that's kind of the opposite of what's being preached everywhere, you know. But moving on from that, getting off my soapbox, um, the last podcast we got to where George C. Marshall was going to VMI. Um, in, in the book, um, Education of a Leader, it only has one chapter about his time in VMI. It's not a lot of depth. It talks about him meeting his wife and her future wife, I guess, spending time with her. But what's important is uh, what he said he learned while at VMI. Um, and he is the class of 1901. And roughly about that time, he he states, um, so what he learned at at VMI was habits of obedience, self-denial, and self-restraint, and the respect for lawful authority. And and to that self-respect, which the consciousness of duty, well done, carries with it. So he basically talks about what he learned at VMI is, is being that disciplined individual and omar bradley in the in the introduction of that book you know he mentions that his his mother taught him leadership but quote his training in at virginia military institute brought out and helped develop his qualities of leadership so that's where he really honed those things and and probably built that foundation right because leadership is a skill that we build and we continue to do over time but that's where that foundation was built and those things that he would use for the rest of his career. I mean, the dude served under 10 different presidents in over 50 years of service. I mean, that's just wild. But just thinking about those foundations that he built at that time and then what what that meant for him in the future. Um, so he graduates VMI, which was a process. Remember, we talked about last time, it wasn't guaranteed that you'd get a commission. So he had to go petition Congress and a whole bunch of other people to get that commission. He wasn't at the top of his class. Um, but he really wanted to do it. Um, so he commissions as a second lieutenant. And then uh, in April of 1902, he sent over to the Philippines. And there's some there's imp- some important stuff that goes on there at the Philippines early on for him. But there's a lot. So I'm going to skip over a bunch of stuff. Um, 
there's a lot of he spends a lot of time in the Philippines. He comes back to the United States. He goes back to the Philippines. Um, he's kind of all over the place. He helped settle Fort Douglas in Salt Lake City. Um, he was stationed in San Francisco. I mean, he's all over the place. But what's interesting is uh, so he commissions as a second lieutenant in 1901. He's sent over to the Philippines in 1902. And then uh, he spends five years as a second lieutenant, nine years as a first lieutenant uh, before he's promoted to captain. So at 14 years of service, as we're starting to go into World War One. Um, he's been in the military 14 years. So just just in contrast, in today's military, you commission as a second lieutenant, you're a second lieutenant for 18 months. It's almost automatic that you promote to first lieutenant. I mean, if you're not promoting to first lieutenant automatically or very close to that 18-month mark, you're probably doing something wrong um, because it's kind of like private first class to specialist on the enlisted side, like, 18 months, bam, you're promoted. It's almost automatic. And then in today's Army as well, you spend a, a short amount of time as a first lieutenant, and generally speaking, most officers uh, make it to captain within four years. So you commission in four years, you're you're already up two ranks to captain. I mean, in George C. Marshall, was five years just as a second lieutenant. So in today's Army, I mean, you can ride that second lieutenant gold bar and you can ride it for a long time and people think you don't know anything and it kind of puts you in a good spot because you can have a lot of opportunity to learn and there's not a whole lot of ex of not a whole lot expected of you but five years as a second lieutenant bro that's a long time so yeah he was a first lieutenant um for even longer but it's just how the military worked back then there wasn't a whole lot of upward mobility we talked about how small they were i mean Ulysses S. Grant, same type of thing. I mean, that guy was a f first lieutenant for a long time. Made it to captain as well. But um, it's just interesting, the contrast in it versus today's, when we have a large, lo a large, uh, long-standing army, how those promotions work. Um, but now, so now it's, it's 1917, he's a captain. George C. Marshall, you know, 1917, if, if you're not tracking what's going on in the world, that's World War I. It's coming in hot and heavy. Um, it's been raging in Europe for several years. It started in 1914 for Europe. United States didn't get dragged into it till 1917. They tried to remain out of it for a long time. Um, but ultimately, for a lot of various reasons, the United States is in it. So it's 1917, George Marshall. He's aide-de-camp to uh, General J. Franklin Bell. Um, and he's kind of bummed. He wanted to go over and work on... General John J. Pershing staff. John J. Pershing, he's the uh, he's the supreme commander for the American Expeditionary Force that goes over for World War One. He wanted to work on his staff. He got really close to it. Uh, interestingly enough, at the time, Captain George S. Patton was working on General J. G. J. John J. Pershing's staff. Um, so Marshall's bummed. He's missing out. He wanted to go. He wanted to get in the mix. Um, so he convinces General Bell to let him go. Basically, he's like, hey, look, I've been your age of camp. I've been awesome. I want to go get in this thing. So they find uh, General William Siebert. He's going over as the one of the first division leaders, and he's also going to be General Pershing's operation officer. Um, so Marshall gets picked up to be one of those assistant to the assistant uh, operations officers. 
Um, so in the military, you have different, you've got personnel, you have operations, you have intel, you have logistics. All of these things are, are handled by a staff um, and, and assistance to those those people. So he's going to be one of the guys working in that G3 operations billet. Um, so he he's working there. He gets picked up for that. He does end up going over for World War One, working for for General Siebert. Um, and with that, what his one of his main roles was, uh, he would do some training events. He'd help schedule those training events, plan out those training events uh, for the soldiers before they would get you know kicked over into the Eastern Western Front. Um, so there's an example here, and I, I don't know if I want to read all of it from the book. I might read all, I might read all of it from the book, but. He talks about one example where John J. Pershing, who is the top dog, right? General Marshall at the time, he's a captain. He's a low old man on the totem pole and his staff. Um, Pershing comes and he observes one of these training events and he's super upset about what happened at this training event, right? Um, so I'm going to read parts of this from the book and we'll talk about it as we go. But So speaking... Um, after the event, after the training event happened, Marshall says it was just kind of a, it was just a dog and pony show, man. Like, it wasn't even a good thing. It was just they knew the general was coming, so they they brought him along. And uh, here's General Pershing speaking. He says, assemble the officers, barked Pershing. He turned to Siebert, who had just arrived, having not witnessed most of the exercise. Conduct the critique, Pershing ordered. Siebert haltingly got off two or three sentences but it didn't go out go fast enough for general pershing pershing rudely interrupted him and then according to marshall he just gave everybody hell in front of the assembled officers he administered severe dressing down to siebert so there's a there's a leadership concept you know praise in public and correct in private so you don't usually give corrective action in front of people especially not in front of subordinates that undermines that individual's authority. So right here, he's just given Siebert, the commanding officer for this division, he's just giving him hell, right? He's giving him a dressing down. He's telling him what's up. Um, he went on to denigrate the readiness of the entire division, complaining that, the, that its officers had not followed instructions from headquarters, specifically of somewhat trivial focus, trivial, trivially focusing on how they were using new names for such things such as ammunition dumps. <laughs> so he's really getting in the weeds here. He's really, you know, picking apart this stuff, getting nitpicky down on that that really low level. So here's here's the important part, right? So he's he's given the commander who's a general, another general, you know, this he's calling him out in front of his troops. And little George Marshall, captain. Here he goes. So as Pershing, tur Pershing turned to leave, Marshall reached out and grasped his arm. General Pershing, there's something to be said here, and I think I should say it because I've been here longer. Pershing, taken aback, paused. Marshall's anger was bubbling to the surface. One of, as one of his aides remembered, when Marshall got angry, his eyes flashed, and he talked so rapidly and vehemently, no one else could get a word in. For the next few minutes, Marshall crisply ticked off several reasons why the division's training program had been interrupted, inhibited, and aiming much of the blame on Pershing's own headquarters staff. With impertinence, Marshall looked directly at Pershing and said, the only thing you've gotten out 
was to change the name of the dump. He's referring to that ammunition dump. And now you're criticizing us for na for the names you've changed. Pershing's chief of staff tried to brush him off, saying, I'll look into it. Marshall shot back. You don't have to look into it, pointing to the packet of papers. And he continued, it's right here in the orders. It's a fact. I was mad all over, recalled Marshall. He went on to drive home the final point. We've worked very, very hard. The men have had no advantages, and they don't expect any. But they ought to get a fair deal at any rate. To this, Pershing could only say, well, you must appreciate the troubles we have. Yes, again, General, Marshall responded, but we have them every day and many a day, and we have to solve every one of them by night. The encounter was over. Marshall's bosom friends believed his career was finished, and he'd be fired right off. To the contrary, Pershing, who was not offended by constructive criticism, was impressed. For Marshall's career, for Marshall's career, this turned out to be a pivotal encounter. His courage in speaking truth to power caused Pershing to confer even more power and authority on him. The general began to seek Marshall's advice, pulling him aside to discuss privately matters of training, strategy, troop morale. In January 1918, Marshall was promoted to lieutenant colonel. Okay, so Homie went from captain, you know, 14 years, 9 years as a first lieutenant, up to a captain, skips major, goes to lieutenant colonel. It's temporary, but still wild. You're going from captain to lieutenant colonel. Throughout the winter and into spring, private sessions between the two became frequent, their relationship deepening. Marshall had encountered no other superior officer with whom he could be frank to, to the degree he could with General Pershing. Okay, so there's a lot in this that's, it's, it's wild, man. I mean, if you think about that, first of all, you got to be thinking about what the, the general is thinking as his captain, one of his aides in his S3 shop, just puts the freaking commanding general on blast. I mean, can you imagine today's military if a captain did that? I mean, the number of officers that would come down on him and just crush his soul. Um, and then the fact that Pershing doesn't crush his soul. So that speaks a lot to Pershing, right? So I don't know if you've ever had a, a boss that says that they want constructive criticism. I've had a couple, and I've actually had one maybe that actually wanted that constructive criticism. Puts you in a really weird spot when a, a lieutenant colonel or a full bird 06 colonel comes to you as a captain and says, you know, hey, I want I want you to give me constructive feedback on how I'm perceived as a leader. And you're like, okay, but you're my senior raider or you're my raider. How's it going to impact me? You know, I'm not going to just put you on blast and say a whole lot of things that are going to offend you. I mean, sometimes it works. Sometimes you have people who really want that constructive criticism. Um, generally speaking, people don't want it direct like that. Generally speaking, people want, you know, they want more of an indirect approach. And if you're going to give them criticism, you do it more tactfully and definitely not in front of a whole lot of people when you're a captain and he's the commanding general. But this is also a, a pivotal experience for, for Marshall because as we, as we go on to his time as, as the chief of staff during World War II, he is huge on people telling him what's up. Huge on people disagreeing with him. I mean, in, in the third book in this volume, maybe it's the second book, I don't remember, but in one of those books, Omar Bradley talks about how, how Marshall calls him out and he's like, you guys have been here on my staff for over a week and you've disagreed with nothing I've said. 
Um, so Marshall takes this this example from Pershing as, as hey man, I can improve. I can be better. Let me figure out how we can do this. And Pershing even takes it to the point where he's 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 talking to this this O three this captain on a pretty regular basis on what they can do to improve stuff, which is wild. I mean, if you look at John J. Pershing's history, I mean that dude was all over the place fighting Pancho Villa. He's We'll, we'll do John Day per- Pershing at one point, but, I mean, he's got a very long, distinguished military history, and and he's going to this captain with 14 years of experience trying to get information because that captain had the stones to come to him and say, hey, sir, this is messed up, and our guys are working hard, and, yeah, we screwed some stuff up, but they don't deserve what you're doing to them. And guess what? Your headquarters is the reason why. And I don't advocate for this approach. I think this is probably unwise in today's military um, but it's a good example of sometimes you do have to give that direct criticism, that direct critique. There is a time and a place when you need to stand up for your people, whether that, I don't know, it's, it's hard to gauge because there's a lot of different avenues of approach for this. You don't have to necessarily just, you know, put the commanding general on blast. There's other ways to do it, but think about that. Um, like I said, we're going to have just a minimal intro to, to Marshall here. We're only going to talk about him for a minute. I had more stuff on Marshall I was going to talk about, but life gets in the way. And uh, I didn't get as much done as I wanted to on this on this podcast. And I wanted to talk about the how of leadership at the beginning. Um, kind of set that foundation for where we're going with this. Um, so again, just to touch on those, and then we'll close it out for, for this one. The characteristics that you need to have to implement um, the how of leadership and how to be a good leader and a valued adder, added leader. Uh, you got to be character and principle based. You got to take ownership. You got to practice and improve your leadership skills every day. Study history and read. You got to do these things. Um, I'm still working on it. I'm not the best example of, of self discipline, I'll tell you that. Man, I try, but boy, do I love pizza. Um, that's my that's my bugaboo my downfall um but anyway so we'll jump back into marshall's time in world war one on the next one um but thanks for tuning in and uh we'll close it out until next time